Well, it's a privilege for me to stand up here and introduce our speaker this morning. We love him, he's part of us, he belongs to this family. We're just very, very thankful for what God has been doing, both in the life of Kyle as well as his brother Luke. And he may say a few things bad about his brother, but he loves him very much, and you get to see him frequently. Thank you, sir, every day. So that's a good thing. God has been really good to put you there in a place where you can see your family so regularly, and that's a good thing. Kyle, you're coming up and open the word to us. We're just very thankful for what God's doing. Thank you, Pastor. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Exodus 34. And uh, as you're turning there, I just wanted to just to take a second and just, just share some of the things the Lord has done uh, in our life the last couple of years. So August will be 12 years that I first started at UNCG Greensboro, and and eight years ago in June, uh, married Leanna. Callie's five. Hudson will be three in September. And God's been so good. We've been at Lawndale Baptist Church the whole time. Um, came up through the college ministry, and and uh, the Lord's just so faithful. And my own call to ministry in 2017, and providing opportunities to serve uh, in that way. So I was an intern for a little while, and working full time, and. Starting a seminary, which Lord willing, I'll graduate in May after six and a half short years of uh, seminary and thankful for my education. And, and uh, so right now, for the last two years, I have been a full-time pastor on staff. Uh, I'm the children and families pastor. And so what that looks like in our setting is I get to do a lot of discipleship and a lot of teaching. So I oversee a team of four, including myself, I have a preschool director and a girls director and our assistant, and uh, oversee all our children's programming from Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, um, and my team kind of implements the day-to-day -day of that, and uh, we have 60 volunteers under them, about 120 kids and their, their parents, and so the Lord has cultivated in me a passion for leadership because I felt very overwhelmed. With that ended up switching my concentration to ministry leadership of how, what does it look like to lead? What does it look like to help develop the people that God has brought to me? Um, closely tied with that is discipleship. So I spend a good part of my day discipling dads because it, everything rises and falls on dad. We can get dad reading the Bible and then dad loves his wife the way he should. And then the, the family just, just grows. And so the best way that we try to reach kids as we say we partner with parents meaning that we'll do everything we can do but i tell parents said if you bring your kids to everything we have that's about four hours a week there's 168 hours in the week and so they're with you 164 hours mm -hmm. so we'll do our part but if i can equip you and disciple you give a man sunday evening so thankful for our senior pastor who said the heart to help us young guys develop so glad for that um and uh, Leanna gets to stay home, and so she enjoys that. She'll start homeschooling Cal in the fall. And uh, she was a nationally awarded first grade teacher, so Cali is in good hands. She did that several years ago. Um, right, Kelly Bud? Yeah. And uh, I mentioned selling our house, so we've just kind of outgrown our house where we are. Been in there five years, but 1,200 square feet just gets a little tight. So we're excited to hopefully expand that. Uh, Luke says hi, Luke and Hope. So he's our college director at Lawndale. And uh, um, I, I hope the Lord just keeps us at the same place forever. Yeah. We, we have a lot of fun. 
Um, well, two weeks ago, it was vacation Bible school, and uh, we had a kid that had to raise so much money, and they got a pine in face. And so, I mean, him and I just went in the middle of the day to Walmart, got and buy bought with whipped cream for the pies. And um, I see him every day. My office is right above his on the second floor, I guess, technically the third floor. And and uh, he's working really hard with the college students and hopes at the pregnancy network. And uh, once a month, they come over to the house and eat and hang out with kids. And uh, so we get to just really enjoy that. And um, yeah, Luke and I are just best friends. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. But God's been so good and just so thankful to get to preach and teach his word. And, and I love getting to preach. And so any opportunity I get, um, I eat it up. And so I was looking at the next, we're going to the beach in a couple of weeks and looking at, it's like, man, I have about seven days to prepare two sermons that'll be in the office. And so, but it's okay. We'll get it, get it done. But um, in your Bibles will be in Exodus 34, 5 through 8. And I'm going to read the text and ask if you would, you would stand with me as we read. Um, and then we'll be seated and we'll pray. So I'm reading out of the ESVs. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You may be seated. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for your people here. Thank you for what you're doing at Blue Ridge Bible Church. And just the people that you're bringing in, Lord, and how you just had your hand upon this church for many years. I thank you for the leadership here. I thank you for the legacy here. And Lord, I pray now that as I get the opportunity to open up your word, I pray that you will help me to decrease and that you will increase. Lord, may we leave amazed at who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. How would you describe yourself? You would likely say your name, followed by your profession, and maybe your familial relationships. Maybe you've never thought about it before, but how you define yourself is often the way that you identify yourself. Your name is who you are and what others can use to communicate with you. My name is Kyle. So you walked in and said, hi, Kyle, right? Your profession shows how you interact with society and what you do to provide for yourself and your family. Your familiar relationships can show the more personal side of your life. Are you married with children? Do you have grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera? We try to describe ourselves to others to try to give them a snapshot of who we are, what we're about, what we do, as I attempted to do before we pray, right? I didn't say, or I should have said, I'm Rick and Erica's favorite son, right? Something like that. But how we identify ourselves is very important by who we are, what we do. And in our text today and throughout the entire Bible, we'll see that the Lord describes himself and is very, very specific with how he does this. And when God describes himself in the Bible, he is clear, he is repetitive, and he is very accurate. So when God describes himself in scripture, it is almost always to put his holiness on display to call his people to either repentance, to worship, or both. So in our text, we're going to look at how God wanted to show Moses his glory 
and he shows them who he really is. Because you see, Blue Ridge, God shows us what he does, who he is, so that we can worship him for who he really is. So if you have a bulletin, you have the outline in there. And so we're going to walk through these verses line by line. What the Lord does, verse 5. Point 2, who the Lord says he is, verse 6 through 7. Point 3, our response to who the Lord is and what he does in verse 8. But for us to understand what's happening in Exodus 34, we got to go back a couple of chapters and get the full context of what's going on. So in, Gen in Genesis, in Exodus 32, we have the golden calf incident, right? And you're familiar with this incident where Moses goes up on the mountain. He's spending time with God. He's up there. He gets the Ten Commandments for the first time, right? God writes him with his finger. And while he's gone, the people have the great idea of saying, you know what? Something happened to Moses. This whole God thing isn't working out. Um, I tell you what we'll do. Let's take all of our gold. Let's make this golden calf and let's worship it and, and glorify it and give it all the credit for bringing us out of Egypt. Right? That, and Aaron leads out in this. And God was so mad. If you go back and read chapter 32, he wanted to kill them all. He wanted to wipe them out and say, Moses, I'll make of you a great nation. But Moses didn't say, God, that sounds really great. These, I'm fed up with these people. Let's just make me a great nation. Instead, he, he, he laments for the people. He begs God on behalf of the people. God relents of his anger. And Moses comes down the mountain, breaks up the calf, grinds it up. The people drink it. He ends up throwing the Ten Commandments on the ground out of anger, and they break. And then we come to chapter 33. So Moses goes back into the tent of meeting where he was with God. He was spending that time alone with God. And he longs to see the glory of God in verse 18. He says, show me your glory, Lord. That was the, the prayer of his heart. He said, show me your glory. He was so hungry to see God and his glory. You see, Moses was a leader of a nation that had already shown that they had the tendency to worship, right? How quickly Israel had, had forsaken God and had worshiped this cow or this image of a cow, proving what John Calvin said, that our hearts are idol-making factories, that we are all about making idols. We are so prone to worship as human beings that we can't help but worship. Believers, non-believers, we can't help but worship. We were made to worship, and you see that in Israel. And so Moses is leading out in this nation, proving that the human heart is, is looking ultimately for its own glory apart from Christ. And Moses comes in and he says, no, I don't want my glory. I, I don't want my glory put on display, God. I want to put you on display. I want you to be glorified. And it's easy for me to stand up here and mock the Israelites until I look hard enough in my own heart and realize I'm like the Israelites. And see that I am prone to creating false idols like the Israelites. So Moses, in the tent of meeting, chapter 33, he prepares to see God, and God lets him see the back of him. If you remember this story, Exodus 33, 21 through 23. And the Lord says, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And where my when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand. I pass by, and I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back. And my face you shall not see. Remember, he said, no one shall see my face and live. And remember when Moses later comes down off the mountain, his face is shining so bright, that to put the veil on it. And so Moses got what he asked for. He saw the physical manifestation of the glory of God, and or at least what he could handle, right? And so 
I've set the framework for 32 and 33 because it's very important to understand what happens in our text here. So chapter 34, leading up to verse 5, Moses did what God commanded. He cuts the two stones to give God to write on the Ten Commandments because God writes it with his finger like he did the first time. So as we're looking at this context, we have a, we have a backdrop of seeing who God is and what he does and how we are to respond to it. So verse 5 says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, descended in a cloud. God had, he had done this several times before in, in the book of Exodus. But he descends in a cloud, and here's where it's different. He stands with Moses there. See, in the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament, people did not have ready access to God like you and I do. They, they didn't have that. There were certain individuals like Moses, different prophets that had access to God. They had that communication with God. But even still, this was a rare sight that God stood. It wasn't just an audible voice speaking. It wasn't a burning bush like Moses had seen before. It wasn't, a, it, it wasn't uh, like any other time he'd been in a tentative meeting. God stood right there. And what God had to say, namely in describing himself, was so important that he wanted to make sure he stood right in front of Moses to say it. It was that important. So my job, I report to our senior pastor. He's my boss, right? Well, when he sends me an email, that's pretty, okay, I, I'm going to respond to his email. Well, when he comes into my office and he stands right here, uh, yes, sir, everything else gets dropped. Right? It's, all right. Your boss comes and stands right here. You're looking at him face to face. It's not, I'll, I'll get with you in a second. That's uh, yes, sir. Right? So when God comes and stands and looks Moses right in the face, it's serious. And what he has to say is very serious. But you see, this might have been a rare occurrence in the Old Testament. But see, this is what God does in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Right? Jesus, the God-man, came down and stood with the people. The creator of you and me came down to the earth and stood with the people. He talked to the people. He healed the people. He was among the people. He ultimately died for the sins of the people. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what God does. He sends his son to be the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, to be with the people and ultimately purify the sins of the people so that we can have that relationship with God, so that we can have that communication with God. This is what we call the priesthood of the believer, meaning that if there was only the priests, there's certain people in the Old Testament, like I mentioned, that had access to God. But Jesus, as Hebrews will say, is the great high priest. So we, priesthood of the believer, meaning that we have the same access to God because of what Christ has done for us. And so don't, don't miss the side of this. As this was a rare occurrence, we have that same access and communication with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. So back in Exodus, what did God do now that he was standing there? He's standing right here with Moses, and what did he do? You look at the text. He proclaimed 
the name of the Lord. The first thing God did wasn't, hey, Moses, how's things going? He proclaimed his own name, right? Because God is first and foremost passionate about his own glory. God is for God and passionately wants to make his name known. John Piper describes it like this. He says, God's glory is God putting his holiness on display. The essence of God's character is his holiness. It is who he is. And his glory is when his holiness is put on display for other people and other things to see. Jonathan Edwards will say it like this. He says, God erected the entire world as a monument for his own glory. Right? He said that in ordination service, by the way, of his son-in-law. So just maybe a thought. Maybe she said that in ordination service. Something like that. But another way we can see this, we see that God is passionate about his own glory, proclaiming his own name, make, making his name known, all about the glory of God. It's all the same language or different language describing the same thing. And we see that arguably this was Jesus's first priority. Now, this is a little trippy if you go to John 17 and you and you read the high priestly prayer, right? So you think, well, Jesus came down to die for my sins. Jesus came down to glorify God by dying for your sins, right? John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So one of the first things Jesus says, he says, Father, he's praying, he's about to die. He says, I glorified you on earth. That was his mission. That was what he did. That was what he does. He was to glorify the Father. So, so why did God say that? Why did Yahweh say that as he's standing there? Because that is what God does. That is who he is. He's holy. What he does is he proclaims the name of the Lord. Another way we know that is how the Lord describes himself in this next session. Next section is who the Lord says he is. So what the Lord does is through Jesus, he stands with his people, right? He dies for the sins of the people, but God is for God and is passionate about his own glory being made known. It is the bedrock of our theology and understanding of everything God does is he is out to glorify himself. David Platt describes it like this. He says, he said, if you read the book of Psalms, it's 150 songs about how great God is. He said, if I were to write that, they'd call me a narcissist. Huh. So that's a good point. He said, but God is God, and he is the creator and sustainer and savior of the world. So he is worthy of being glorified. And that is what we're called to do. Back in our text, verses six to seven, point number two, who the Lord says he is. Verse 6 and 7 say, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord describes himself here very clearly. Commentators have noticed that verses 6 and 7 are repeated in Numbers 14, 18, 2 Chronicles 39, 30 verse 9, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 15, Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 111, 4, Psalm 112, 4, Psalm 116, 5, Psalm 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, and Nahum 1, 3. So God ensures that his word frequently, frequently shows us who he is. God says something once in the Bible, we better listen. God says it 106 times like this. We better make sure we get it. In these verses, we see how God describes himself. So walking through this one thing at a time. 
First, the Lord repeats his name. The Lord, the Lord. There's some debate why he does this. Why does the Lord say the Lord, the Lord? Um, I believe, now this is my understanding of the text, that he wants to really get Moses' attention. I mean, he's already standing there in front of him. He's going before him. And he says, the Lord, the Lord. I was looking at Pastor Peter, and I wanted to get his attention and say, Kyle, Kyle is, and I'm really wanting to drive my point home. I think that's what the Lord is doing right here. So he repeats his name because it's very, very important. So who is God? How does God describe himself? He's standing there. What, is, what does he say after he gets Moses' attention? God is merciful. That's the first thing he says. He is a God of great mercy to his people. In this context, remember what's just happened, that the people deserve the punishment, right? They had just erected this giant cow and gave it the glory for what they saw God do through all these plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, through all the manna, through all the battles, through all the things they'd already been through. They had seen God do some miraculous things, and yet quickly they turned around and down and worshipped this stinking cow. <laughs> and, and look at God's great mercy, right? He relented of his anger towards them, despite their clear and open idolatry. God shows them great mercy. And here's the good news, church. Here's the good news. He is still a God of great mercy. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you, let's put in Kyle there. And Kyle was dead in his trespasses and sins. By the way, that Greek word for dead is nekros, right? Which doesn't just mean, well, it's kind of this a sleeping corpse or it's kind of something floating. It is a dead, diseased, corrupting corpse on the bottom of the ocean, dead, lifeless. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were spiritually dead. And once you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here it is. But God. Is there any better words in the Bible than but God? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God has shown us great mercy by saving us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, but God has to be some of the greatest words in the Bible. But God highlights his mercy. Secondly, God is gracious. The people had turned their backs on God, had robbed him of his glory through their sinful actions. God is gracious to them, and we know that about him, that God is gracious to us. If grace is getting what you don't deserve, right, take a second and think about the great grace God has shown you in your life personally. If you were to really think back, we teach the kids at, at church that grace is getting what you don't deserve, and sin is anything you think, say, or do that goes against God. So if you if you have that working definition of sin, and you think back over your last month, your last week, the weekend, the drive over here, we've sinned. We've sinned. Yet God is gracious to us. You know, C.S. Lewis, he's a professor at Oxford. I love you quoted Lewis earlier. And and he, he started out as an atheist, and then he, he got saved, and, and 
um, he was still a professor and he was walking by a classroom one day and some of these other professors were saying, Lewis, what is it about Christianity that makes it so different? They had this blackboard and they had all these different religions and had everything written up there. And he takes a piece of chalk and he goes up to the board and in big letters, he writes grace. That's the difference is that God is gracious and that God gives us what we don't deserve. Jesus took what I deserved. And I got what Jesus deserved. Amen. Remember, God is slow to anger. Consider the patience of God. When the people failed him, after all he did for them, right? If you read through, read through the book of Exodus not that long ago, and it's amazing all God did for his people. I mean, it's astounding. He took this enslaved group of people and he delivered them out of Egypt, one of the mightiest nations in the world, through all kinds of supernatural means and plagues and hail and locusts and turning water into blood and turning staffs into snakes, and not to mention the parting of the Red Sea. The Exodus was God's great deliverance event of the Old Testament, foreshadowing God's great deliverance event of the New Testament, whereas God parted the Red Sea, Jesus came and parted sin so that we could walk through into eternal life. And God had done all of this, and, and look at how, how the people had betrayed him and his patience, and he is still that patient, right? In my world of, of parenting, I have to be slow to anger in parenting, right? How many times have I told you? Not you, Cal. How many times have I told you, right? Or in our marriages of, hell, oh, they're doing that again. But God, God is a loving, gracious father. Jesus, loving, patient, bridegroom, his bride, consider the patience of God. Next, God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These two go hand in hand, steadfast love and faithfulness, because God is nothing but true love because he is faithful, and we know he's faithful because of his true love for us. Which one came first, the chicken or the egg? It's this, it's this true love and God's faithfulness go hand in hand. We see that in 1 John 3, 16. By this, we know love, right? The world wants to define what love is of me doing whatever I want to do and you having to tolerate it because how, how dare you get in the way of me, right? But by this, we know love, that love is epitomized in that while he laid down his life for us, we have to lay down our lives for our brother. That self-sacrificial Greek agape love for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish to have eternal life. That verse we memorize as children, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I have one son. This verse hits a little different when you have kids. So that we could be saved. God is love. God is faithful. That is who he is. They go hand in hand. Next. This one's just long. Not only is God abounding in steadfast love, but he keeps his steadfast love to thousands. How do we know God keeps his steadfast love to thousands? Because he says he forgives iniquity, he forgives transgressions, he forgives sins. These are all synonymous words used in the, in the Bible for sin. They all mean the same thing. But what I believe Moses is trying to get as he's pinning this and he's recounting this event is that God just doesn't wipe out one part of your sin in Christ, is he wipes out all of your sin. He wipes it all out. 
There's not any blot left on your ledger. I mean, you are wiped clean. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. Psalm 103.1 says almost the same thing as our text here. I love that that's on your wall, by the way. But in verse 1, it adds, as far as the east is from the west. So God separates our, our sin as far as the east is from the west. He's a good God who forgives the sin of his people. But this does not mean that we believe in universalism. Universalism is... Jesus came, that's cool. I have some kind of working intellectual knowledge of the historical fact and that Jesus came and we're all, everything's kosher. No, what we believe, biblical Christianity, is that God is a righteous judge that can't be in the presence of sin. Therefore, he sent him who could be no sin to take on sin for us so that we could be justified in our faith. Paul puts it like this in Romans 3, 23 to 24. For all have sinned. All have sinned. Have you sinned, Calvin? Yeah. Yes. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we are all guilty and our sin is put on Christ. He took our guilt for us. He took our punishment for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. Paul Tripp explains it like this. He says justification is that Jesus took our punishment for us and he defeated the power of sin sanctification is we still live in the presence of sin and we are working towards becoming more like jesus so we are justified from the power of sin jesus has paid that sanctified sanctification is we are as we're living in this fallen world we try to become more like christ here's the scary part is those that are not in christ will not have their guilt clear we are all guilty it's only those in christ that will have their guilt clear. And I love, we talked about Matthew 7 already several times this morning, and that, all of that, that in my pastoral heart, that rings deep, that Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, 5 through 8, and says, many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord, then I prophesy in your name, then I do this in your name, do this in your name, and I always substitute those three and say, Lord, Lord, did I not show up to church every Sunday? Did I not come to Bible study? Did I not serve in BBS? Did I not tithe money? Did I not do X, Y, and Z? And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And he never knows them because those people on the last day are saying, Lord, Lord, look at my works. Did my works not do this, 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 this? Therefore, I've earned it. And Jesus says, you didn't know me. You knew me. You would know that your salvation is based on works. It's just not your works. Quote Stephen Lawson. It's based on Jesus. That's what makes Matthew 7 so scary. And if you jump forward to Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas come into Philippi, you remember the story. Paul comes up to the place of prayer on the Sabbath day, and he meets Lydia, right? Sell her purple goods, this rich woman. So it's a biblical way of saying she was loaded. And she's she's at the place of prayer on the Sabbath day. It, it, it hardly gets any more religious than that. And yet it wasn't until she wrote the gospel that she got saved. And then she took it back to her household and they got saved. And then it's believed that the church of Philippi met at her house. Say that to say, like we've talked about already this morning, that there's so many in our churches that assume that their works is getting them into heaven. And we need to make sure we're continually preaching the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that saves. It's not what we do. We didn't bring nothing to the table. It's just the gospel. 
The beauty of the gospel is that nobody's too far gone. Uh, Jim Simbola up at Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York talks about the ministry he's had with inmates. Of, of, and there's one guy in particular, he was a mass murderer. And he was a satanic worshiper. He's a mass murderer. And he says, he says, that guy gave his life to Christ and he got on fire for God so quickly because he was already used to giving his allegiance to something else. But God saved him. If there's ever someone you could think of too far gone, it's a mass murder on death row, right? Or the apostle Paul, as, as Stephen's being stoned and he said, I'll hold your jacket, supervising the whole thing, right? But has there been a better missionary outside of Jesus Christ himself than the apostle Paul? No one's too far gone. It's the beauty of the gospel. So, you know, back in our text. The next part of this verse is a little confusing because it says, in visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children's children. And John MacArthur helps us shed some light here. Where he says, Moses has made it clear that the children were not punished for the sins of their parents. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but children would feel the impact of the breaches of God's law by their parents' generation as a natural consequence of its disobedience, its hatred of God. Children reared in such an environment would then practice similar disobedience. What he's saying is children are not responsible for their parents' sins, but they will feel the impact of their grandparents or their parents' unfaithfulness because sin has consequences. And we are all leaving a legacy. And this is what I, I, I say day in and day out in my job is you are leaving a legacy, good or bad. You're leaving a legacy for the next generation. Are you going to leave a legacy that looks to glorify self? Which is what sin boils down to, by the way. If you think about the Garden of Eden, what did Satan tempt Eve with? You will be like God. Meaning, you will be worshipped. You will be glorified like God. Will you leave a legacy of glorifying self? Or you leave a legacy of glorifying God? That's your two choices. There's no middle ground here. So, God just laid it on thick for Moses in the tender meeting. He's standing here in front of him. He says what he does. He says who he is. And then, how does Moses respond to this? Verse 8, so last point. How does Moses respond to this? How do we respond to this? Verse 8 says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worship. God just said what he does and who he is in some concise couple of sentences that would be repeated all throughout the Bible. And Moses is so undone by what he's heard that he doesn't just say, thank you, Lord, and he gets better with him. He prostrates himself on the earth and he worships with God. He had asked God to show him his glory in chapter 38, verse 18. Not only did God do that physically, but God did that here in showing him who he is and what he does. Moses was so blown away that his only response was to worship his God. He didn't have anything else to say. Have you ever, have you ever been so overcome with God that you're speechless? You have nothing left to say. You see, the more we see of who God is and what he does, the more we see our only natural response is to worship him. Because you see, we all respond to who God is, what he does. We all respond to the gospel in one way, shape, or form. You either respond by responding 
or do you respond by not responding? Right? If I give you a gift and you take it or you don't take it, you are sending a response to me one way or another. And so there's no lukewarmness here. You don't have to take the present. You don't just cut it in half and take half of it. Don't just unwrap it and leave it. Is you either take it or you don't. And the more we see of who God is, the more we'll see our natural response is to worship. In our text, God wanted to show Moses his glory and who he really is. God shows us what he does, who he is, so that we can worship him for who he is. So Blue Ridge, what do we do with this? What do we do with it? So what Moses do with it? How do we <laughs> respond to that? A couple of tangible ways I think we can respond. First, recognize what God does. More specifically, recognize what God did. God became flesh. John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator in the beginning was God, right? John 1, 1 the Logos is God, Jesus, the creator, came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did he do? Is he glorified God by paying for our sin on the cross. One of the, I'm thankful in my season of life, I teach senior adults, I teach preschoolers and everything. In between. <laughs> well, I learned how to teach the Bible. Yeah. Teach those two groups in the span of two days. And then we tell the kids, as we say, raise your hand if you have a brother or sister. And they almost always raise their hand. We say, raise your hand if you've ever seen your brother or sister get in trouble. And they raise their hand. We say, how many of you said, said, mom or dad, I see that I didn't do anything wrong this time, but my brother did. How about I'll take their spanking and they get to go watch TV? And ask the kids, how many of y'all have ever done that? There's always one that we know he's lying. <laughs> well, you've said Paul sort of the glory of God. But but the point is that Jesus, Jesus took our punishment so that we could have a good life. Recognize what God does. So let me ask you. Who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus your personal Savior? And you realize that Jesus took my sin on the cross. He lived the life I couldn't live and died the death I couldn't die. But the good news is that he's not still dead. What's the other difference in the Christianity? Our, our, our Lord is not in the ground. He's seated at the right hand of God. Who is Jesus to you? I'd like to share the gospel of the ABCs. Romans 10, 9, and 10. You confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead. You're saved. Hey, admit you're a sinner. Believe in who Jesus is and what he's done. And then confess it. It's such good news if the audibly tell people. You confess it. So who is Jesus to you? Other part of this we can is that you are where you are by the sovereign hand of God to be on the mission of God. Right? You are where you are. You are in the neighborhood you're at, in the workplace you're at, in the family you're at, in the house you're at, in the church you're at, to make much of God. So it's one thing to make much of God on Sunday morning. Are we making much of God on Monday and Tuesday morning? Is the life you live on Sunday different than the life you live on Monday? You are where you are to be a part of the mission of God. Secondly, Meditate on who God is. Look back over these attributes of God. He's gracious. He's patient. Look back over these and see his great mercy on you. You are separated from God, but God is rich in mercy. You see, we can get very busy in our everyday ministry of God, doing different things for God. We often reflect, fail to reflect on the great mercy of God. 
this is easy in churches of all sizes. Because in our church, the larger church, with 900 or so on a Sunday morning, but there's a small youths doing the work. <laughs> and it's, it's you get so busy doing work for God, you fail to meditate on God. Yes. Use Paul Tripp's analogy again. He talked about a friend of his that had a rose garden. He was so obsessed with keeping his rose garden perfect, and it stressed him out all the time. And he said, man, do you ever just sit and enjoy the rose garden? You ever sit and enjoy it? He said, it, 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 it's like, wow. You ever just sit and meditate on who God is and what he's done for us and why you're doing the ministry work to begin with? Don't get too busy with the work of God. You fail to meditate on the word of God with a humble heart for the grace of God. Lastly, worship him. Look to see his glory in corporate worship. Come when the doors are open, ready to hear his word through song, through preaching. Love the songs today, by the way. Worship together with other believers. Don't forsake the assembly. Coming together. And then worship him through a quiet time. Oh, man, how life and death it is to have time with the Lord every single day. Every day. I recently read a quote that says, if you miss a quiet time one day, God knows. If you miss it two days, um, you know it. If you miss it three days, everybody knows it. And so true. And so Jesus said, when he was tempted in the garden, man shall not live by bread alone, but everywhere that comes to the mouth of God, as he's quoting Deuteronomy 4. And I don't know about you, but I like eating more than Sunday and Wednesday. I like eating every day during the week. And spiritually, I need that nourishment even more. And I know we get busy and get to work early, life gets busy, but what are we prioritizing? Spend time with the Lord every day. Learn the skill of self-feeding spiritually. Look and see who God is and what he's done for yourself every day. Do you regularly feast on the word of God? Do you just take five minutes, ten minutes, and feast on who he is and what he's done for you? I mean, he died for you. Can you not spend five minutes with him? More than that. Do you take advantage of the face-to-face -face relationship you can have, you can enjoy through Christ? So Blue Ridge, how would you describe yourself? In our text and throughout the Bible, we see the Lord describes himself and is very specific in how he does this. When God describes himself, he's clear, accurate, and repetitive. When God does describe himself in scripture, it's usually to put his holiness on display, call his people to either repentance, worship, or vote. So my challenge for you, how are you going to respond to that? How are you going to respond what God has worked in your heart today. So during the song, as we close, I'll pray for the song, is I'm going to just stand over here and if the Lord is working in your heart, I'd love to pray with you. You are blessed with an amazing pastor who I know would love to pray with you as well. So I'll just offer that there. Church, who God is, what God does how we respond to it is crucial questions. Lastly, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there's no shame in saying, well, I've been in church all my life. I, I'm, I'm too embarrassed. You know, everybody already thinks I'm a Christian. No, the shame is in not. I would love to talk with you. I know your leaders would love to talk with you as well. Bully Rich, I love you. Good to be back. Thanks for letting me come up here. May we respond to how God has worked truth in our heart. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your great mercy. Pray you will help us, Lord, to respond to how you have spoken to our 
into our hearts today. May we respond to your word. May we confess sin. May we put our faith in you if we haven't done that already. Lord God, may we leave here closer to you than when we walk in the doors. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.